Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. I am Pete Stearns and I'm one of our pastors here. Uh, last week, our senior pastor launched, uh, launched us on a conversation about engaging in remarkable relationships. If we're honest, each of us can probably recognize that the past 18 months have produced quite a strain on the relationships in our life. Relationships with our loved ones, significant others, friends, colleagues, and neighbors. And we've experienced this strain for a variety of reasons. You see, for some of us, as we went into quarantine and isolation, the distance from our family and our friends created a barrier. Our relationships were rocked by the reality that we could not spend time with one another. We no longer traveled to visit grandma and grandpa. We lost our playdates with friends, dinner parties, backyard barbecues. We lost our relationships in the workplace as we found ourselves sitting behind screens instead of sharing a cup of coffee with our colleagues. And you see that distance produced challenge and strain for the love that we shared with one another. And we found that as things began to open up and as we came back together, we were different people than we were when it all began. And our relationships suffered. For others, it was the opposite. We found ourselves quarantined with our family members, with our spouses, with our children, with our brothers and sisters. We were on top of each other, spending countless hours with one another in homes that were not necessarily intended for a quarantine. We didn't have healthy releases for emotional and spiritual turmoil. And because of that, we put undue burden on the people that were closest to us, and that began to fracture and divide our relationships. We also can recognize that this past year has been particularly divisive within our culture. We have found that conversations surrounding race and vaccinations, presidential elections, and masking has driven wedges between the love that we have shared for our best friends and our family. And we have found ourselves unable to reconcile our differences. And so as we enter into this school year with one another, as we begin to look at what a life post-pandemic might appear to be, we need to wrestle through what it means for us to rekindle the love that we have for one another, to share in such a way that we can enter into a Christian community that is built upon the remarkable relationships that we hold with one another. A few years ago, I went down uh, to visit my brother and his family in Virginia. And he lives in, on this beautiful property in the woods. He has 10 acres of, of forested land, but beside his house, he has carved out a patch of green grass amidst the wood so his boys can play out in the yard. 
Well, on, on one afternoon, a lazy afternoon, my two nephews came to me and said, Uncle Pete, do you want to go fly a kite with us? Now, I had no intentions of flying a kite that day, but trying to be the fun-loving uncle that I hoped to be, I said, of course. And so we went out into the yard, and we got that multicolored kite all set up, and we began to run back and forth across this grassy patch. And with each run, the kite would sail up into the sky. The boys would shriek with delight. But when I reached the edge of the grass, I would stop and the kite would fall back down to earth. The boys would moan with disappointment, but we would do it again and again and again and again. You see, the challenge was is that because we were surrounded by trees, we did not have easy access to the wind that would indeed carry the kite. So it was simply propelled by my own human effort. But after what felt like a hundred trips across the yard, a gust of wind came down from the trees and it picked up the kite. And it began to flutter and flit in the wind, dancing back and forth uh, with some significant volatility. The boys cheered and clapped and smiled as it flew about beneath the trees but above the ground. It still took a decent amount of effort to keep it in the air, but there it was doing what kites are supposed to do, leaning into its unique characteristics of capturing wind and transferring that energy into flight. Well, as the gust died down, so too did the kite. And I could see the disappointment on the eyes of my nephews. And so we continued to keep at it. Over and over again, we would run across that yard, and every once in a while, the wind would catch the kite. Until finally, a strong gust of wind carried the kite up above the tree lines, where the breeze was unadulterated by the impediments of the leaves and the branches. And there, the kite truly began to sail as it flew steadily in the wind far above my brother's home. You see, we are going to be using this image of a kite throughout this series as an allegory for what it means for us to enter into relationships with one another. You see, today we're going to be looking at that very flight path and asking ourselves, where is my relationship today with my colleagues, with a neighbor, with a friend, with my spouse? And how can I move from this stage of flight into the next? How can I begin to propel my relationship towards one that is flying unimpeded by the challenges of the life around me and instead absorbing that wind that comes from a relationship with God? We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12. And particularly, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 17. And I want to apologize in advance because I tend to talk about this passage a lot. It's one of my absolute favorite stories that Paul shares with the early church. Because I think it is so poignant in our culture today. And it is one that I have failed to grasp time in and time out. And so it continues to be relevant for me and I imagine for many of us out here. You see, Paul is turning to the church, 
And he's responding to some division that he is seeing amongst the body of Christ. And he is challenging them to recognize the role that they play in engaging in remarkable relationships that will set a foundation for the gospel of Christ to spread to the furthest reaches of the world. And so today, in a culture and a church that is divided by a myriad of things, we turn back to this scripture and we ask ourselves, how might this speak to us in our current context in a way that allows us to propel the gospel into our communities, lifting Christ above anything else? Verse 12 says this, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave and free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. You see, it's just this one wind that carries the kite. There are not many winds, but there is one that carries us above the tree lines. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? You see, as we talk about and think about what it is for us to engage in relationships, we must begin to recognize that there is one spirit that carries those relationships. There is one God that is the foundation upon which all of those relationships are built. And that one God has uniquely equipped us to engage in the world around us. And so we must embrace our identity. We must embrace our passions, our skills, our talents, and recognize that God, in his creativity, has carefully crafted us to become a part of a community that is much larger than we are. And that we are to engage in these remarkable relationships, not putting up a facade of something else, but instead leaning into our own identity. You see, it is upon a foundation of Christ and a recognition of how he has created us that we are prepared to even consider entering into relationships. You see, the English language has not captured the essence of love well. You see, when we talk about love, we could be referring to our favorite football team or our affinity for tacos. We could be talking about the sense of affection that we feel for our children, but also for our mother and our spouse. When we talk about love, we can be talking about somebody that we just met. We, I love that person, but we can also be talking about a friend that we have shared life with for 30 or 40 years. You see, there's quite a bit of ambiguity to the way that we understand the word love. And because of that, I think that sometimes we don't recognize the nuance of the relationships that we are in. 
Well, you see, the Greek in which Scripture was written in, the New Testament was written in, love is not nearly as ambiguous. Instead, there are four basic words that are used to describe love, and we're going to be looking at three of those words to begin to capture an understanding of where we find ourselves in our relationships today. Those words are eros, philia, and agape. And so first, I want us to think about this word eros. You see, eros is the feeling of love that we have when we're overcome with excitement for someone else. It's entirely dependent upon me, and it says that I am a part of this relationship because you meet my expectations, because you do something for me. How many of us have been thrilled when a new neighbor moves into our community and they seem to check all of the boxes of the friend that we have wanted to live next door to us for all of these years? We are excited because of the gap they fill in our lives. How many of us experienced this overwhelming sense of infatuation when we engaged in a relationship with our significant other, that first date, those butterflies that conjured up in us when we thought there is absolutely nothing that they could do wrong. Brittany found out the hard way that that was false. You see, this understanding of Eros and the relationships that are built upon it are entirely dependent upon our experience. You see, we are taking our own gifts our own unique identity, and extrapolating it upon others and expecting them to become the perfect fit with us. But you see, the challenge with this kind of love is that it is inherently fallible. We are broken people, and we are only one piece of the great puzzle that is God's body. And so if we recognize ourselves instead of Christ as the head, then every relationship that circles around us will in fact be dependent upon our brokenness rather than Christ's sovereignty. In psychological terms, this understanding of love is called motivated perception. You see, motivated perception basically says we see the world how we want to see it. We build it around the narrative of our life. This is why I can confidently tell you that I have never watched a Seattle Seahawks football game in which our team was flagged appropriately. Every single time I've ever watched a game, the other team had committed atrocious fouls on the field and they had not been flagged, while my beloved Seattle Seahawks, doing nothing wrong, were penalized time and time again. You see, it's this motivated perception that allows us in the midst of an election season to assume that our candidate has won every single presidential debate. There has never been a time in which the morning after a debate we have turned on the news station that we tend to watch and watched a screen that told us that our candidate had lost. Well, that can't be true, can it? You see, a few years ago, some psychologists did an experiment on this motivated perception. And they took images that were fairly ambiguous and they showed them 
to test groups. And these test groups were hooked up to all sorts of wires and sensors that were understanding their synapses and, and all of these different things so that they couldn't lie or they couldn't fib a little bit. And they began to ask them questions. I want us to look at this image up here on the screen. This is a famous image, and I want you to turn to someone next to you just for a moment and tell them what you see. You see, I remember this image even from my childhood. How many of us saw this in school and, and, and learned about what it means to see things differently than others? I want to take a quick poll. Who here saw a young woman with her face turned away? And who here saw the side profile of a much older woman? You see, it's intentionally ambiguous. And depending on who we are and how we see the world, we might see it differently. But the psychologists wanted to test this concept of motivated perception. And they wondered or hypothesized that if there were rewards based upon what you saw, if that would change the way that the brain perceived the images in front of them. And so they had a whole set of images just like the one we have seen and had said essentially... If you see the young woman, you'll receive a reward, and if you see the older woman, you will have a penalty. And they recognized, having studied the actual synapses of the brain, so these are not people that are lying for rewards, that the brain began to see the image most likely tied to the reward at a much higher frequency. You see, as we saw the world around us, we saw it motivated by ourself, by our personal gain. And in an experiment or when watching our favorite football team, this does not have significant impacts on us, but when we allow this type of love to be the foundation upon which we build all of the relationships around us, we are setting ourselves up for failure. Yes, just like with my nephews, we will shriek with joy as we run across that field and we see that relationship soar up into the sky. But eventually, if we engage in relationships that are simply motivated by our own human effort, by our own perception of the world around us, we will inevitably come crashing down to the earth. Last week, Dan used a passage that immediately follows the one that I just read in 1 Corinthians 13 to outline the truest form of love, the love that we should pursue with all of our lives and with all of our hearts. It comes in 1 Corinthians 13, and it says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You see, this is a powerful verse. 
But that word love is not a word that is motivated by our own selfish ambitions. The word that is translated for us love in that passage is not eros that's built upon our infatuation, that's dependent upon us, that engages in relationships because they are beneficial, but instead that word is agape, which we will talk about in a little bit here, but agape in essence is the love that God shares for us. It is a love that is founded in His consistency. And I find it interesting that when we replace that agape love with eros love, it falls entirely incomplete. We're going to look at this passage one more time. And instead of seeing the word love, you'll see a blank. And I want you just quietly to read this passage with your own name placed in each of those blanks. Pete is patient. Pete is kind. And I want you to reflect for a moment where it feels this passage falls incomplete when you replace God's love with your own. Take a moment in the quiet to reflect. I don't know about you, but when I read the passage that way, I feel a little uncomfortable because I begin to recognize just how clearly I have fallen short of the remarkable relationships that God desires me to have. And I realize that more often than not, The relationships in my life are built not upon the foundation of God and His love for us, but instead upon a foundation of desiring my expectations and needs to be met. So if we are a church filled with people that want to engage in remarkable relationships, we need to start by recognizing our inherent value and how God has gifted us. But second, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it about me that is limited? Yes, we recognize that we have been created uniquely by God, but we also recognize that we fall short of His glory. And if we are not cognizant of those deficiencies then we build relationships upon a fragile framework rather than a solid foundation. You see, the second word that we see Scripture describe love as is this term philia. And philia, in essence, is the type of love that we share in dear friendships. It is a love that becomes dependent upon the other. We are loving others if they lean into their giftings, if they embody who God made them to be. This type of love has taken a step away from ourselves. It has placed our trust in another. 
It is a vulnerable type of love. It is an authentic type of love. And it is an exhilarating type of love. It recognizes that we are incomplete, that we fall short of the glory of God, and that others in the world around us are there to intentionally come alongside us and partner with us and walk with us as we engage in this kingdom family of God. You see, as that 1 Corinthians 12 passage continues, in verse 18 through 22, Paul goes on after saying that each of us has been gifted, each of us is unique. He says, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just where he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You see, I love this passage because when we read it all together in one chunk, it just feels like Paul's saying the same thing over and over again. And we're like, we get it. I'm not a hand. I'm a foot. But really what Paul is doing is that he is changing the dependencies in the passage. So it starts out by saying we should live into our gifts. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be disappointed that we are not a hand, but rather a foot. But then it transitions here in 18 through 22 by saying then we shouldn't point to others and say that we don't need them because they are not the part of the body that most closely relates to us. And so Paul transitions us from this kind of eros infatuation that's built upon ourselves to then recognizing the unique identities of others. We live in a culture today that has told us that we need to be polarized from one another. That you are either on this side or the other. That you either for me or against me. You are like me or you are different. And we create divisions based upon the unique identities and the ways that God has equipped our minds to see the world. And I think that Paul is calling us to live in the tension, to live in the messiness, to not only put up with our differences, but instead to celebrate the diversity of the body. A diversity that is played out both in our giftings, but also in our worldviews, in our ideologies, in our understandings of Scripture and history and culture and liturgy. Because it is in this diversity that we allow relationships to begin to take flight, not of our own effort, but instead capturing the wind that comes from the Spirit of God. This past week, I watched a documentary that I would recommend for all of us here. It was called The Biggest Little Farm. And it follows along uh, with a young couple, the Chesters. And they have this dream upon getting married that they, being these city-dwelling folks, are going to move out of the Bay Area and instead start a farm. But they don't want to just be your typical farm. Instead, they want to engage in sustainable farming, in a farm that recognizes the value of of every species, every invader, every plant, a farm that is cognizant of the symbiosis that takes place 
throughout uh, the world around us in the created order. And so they buy an old farm just outside of Ventura. And when they get there, this farm has been used for uh, what is referred to as monocropping. And monocropping effectively is what we see in the farms all across uh, the more rural parts of Illinois and Iowa. It's where a farmer just plants one crop across all of their hundreds of acres, and they harvest it year in and year out, over and over and over again. It's an efficient approach to farming that allows one species to thrive while rooting out every single other one. But the challenge is, is one species draws a very particular type of nutrients from the soil, and so farms over and over have to reinvent themselves because their land dries up and they are no longer beneficial to sustain life. And so they have this desire to take over this farm that's been used for monocropping, that soil has just turned into garbage, that that developers want to grab and, and put up homes in and reclaim its identity. And so the first thing that they do is they start a worm farm. Not exactly what I would have expected, but they begin to raise and breed worms. Because worms produce nutrients in the soil. Worms can revitalize the soil. And so they start by infesting their land with an invader. An insect that most farmers use pesticides to get rid of, but instead the Chesters recognize as beneficial in revitalizing the farm that they have purchased. And I'm not going to go through the whole story, but it is a beautiful image of how this codependence upon different living species allows for a farm to blossom and grow. But there's one particular experience of symbiosis that I want to highlight because I thought it was so stark. The farm in its early stages was basically known for its orchard and its eggs. They had planted 70 types of fruit trees and they had hundreds of chickens that were producing thousands of eggs and they were bringing all of this fruit and all of these eggs to local farmers markets and they were becoming something of a cult favorite. People were coming out to visit the farm uh, to, to see their chickens, to, to walk through their orchard and their, their beautiful plots of land. But there were two invaders that were threatening their way of life and caused them a need to think creatively. First, their orchard had become infested with groundhogs. And the groundhogs were chewing the roots of the trees, and the trees were no longer able to sustain the fruit that was their livelihood. And at the same time that this was happening, coyotes had started to come into their chicken coops, and they were losing 30 to 50 chickens every single night. They went to the farms around them to ask what they do, and they said, well, we, we just trap the groundhogs, and we hunt the coyotes, and, and, and we keep them at bay as best as we can, and then when they return, we just continue the cycle again. But the Chesters felt that that was against the way that they had intended to farm. And so instead, they trained their sheepdog to live in the chicken coop. And when the coyotes would come, the sheepdog would bark, and the coyote would run away. And interestingly enough, the coyote, now no longer feasting upon a cheap meal of chickens, needed to find something else to sustain itself on. 
and it began to hunt the groundhogs. You see, they had these two pests, each of which were threatening their way of life, but instead of trying to eradicate them from their world and from their farm, they instead creatively asked themselves, where can they fit? And how can they be a part of this beautiful cycle of life that God has drawn us into? You see, it's easy to recognize the beauty of this authenticity when we think about this agrarian culture, but it comes so much more challenging when we realize that God is calling us to do the very same thing in the relationships that we have seen crumble in the past year. God is challenging us. Don't simply try to eradicate everything that's different than you, but instead understand how your God has created it to uniquely fit within the community that surrounds you. You see, we need to ask ourselves what in us is limited. But the second thing that we need to ask as we enter into these relationships is what is it about others that needs to be celebrated? If every single one of you in this room is created in the unique identity of God, if every single person in our world, in our country, is created to reflect the glory of our Savior, then we must begin to recognize what needs to be celebrated in them. Now you see, even once we have recognized our own value and our own limitations, even once we have seen the kites of the lives of others begin to live into their unique kiteness to catch the, the, the gusts of winds that are around them, we will still find our relationships falling apart because of sin. You see, the kite in my brother's yard didn't catch wind because there were barriers that were keeping that wind from truly capturing it and embracing it. And in the same way, regardless of how holistically we see our relationships, how dependent we are upon one another to meet each other's needs, we will still experience impediments to the Spirit of God that come in the way of sin. Sin both in our lives, sin in the lives of others, and sin just in the fallenness of humankind. You see, Romans chapter 3 says it this way, and the first few chapters of Romans are, are so challenging to me because effectively Paul goes through every single type of sin that you might possibly encounter, sins that would be taboo within the church, and then sins that have kind of been embraced. And he concludes this, this challenging few chapters by saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, if we want to enter into relationships that soar, we need to lean on this agape love. This love that loves others in spite of their sin, this love that is dependent entirely upon God. A love that carries us above the treetops of the sin in our world and allows us to fly in a way that others look up in awe and admiration. 
You see, it is upon these remarkable relationships that Christ has built his church. If we want to embrace them fully, we need to understand our limits. We need to celebrate others. But finally, we need to ask, where do I need to call upon God's redemption and righteousness in my life? Where are there divisions that are just too great for me to look past? That I can lean on the steady wind of the Spirit of God to carry me above the vitriol. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have built us as creatures of love, intended to be in relationship with one another. And Lord, we pray today humbly before you, admitting that so often our relationships have begun and ended upon our own motivated perceptions. They have been entirely dependent upon who we are and what we want. Lord, we pray that you would draw us into relationships that recognize the beauty and codependence of your creation. And Lord, that we would open ourselves up to your righteousness, your redemption, and your restoration. Amen.